Hey folks, what's up? It's me, your boy Sam. Uh, I'm here in my own version of Hellraiser, uh, wherein my version of Pinhead is covered in cat hair. Anyway, that's not why we're here. We're not, we're not here to talk about this. As much as Sam has made it about this, uh, Sam is now going to redirect us toward our point of focus. All right, let me get hydrated. Weird energy today. I'm anxious. Not totally sure why. I've got a couple of things that I need to do, but it, I should have plenty of time for them. So we are currently reading Sherlock Holmes, A Study in Scarlet. Fortunately, the starting point of the Sherlock series was pretty clean. This is the point at which um, Sherlock Holmes and John Watson meet. They've met, they are currently living together, and Watson has uh, accompanied Holmes to his first sort of uh, consultation. Holmes was pretty pretty dodgy about what it is he did for a living. Uh, he kept very strange hours. Hello. Um, he was constantly covered in cat hair. Oh wait, no, hold on, that's me. The first one was us, but that one was just me. Um, but he's got all these strange people who come over and, and visit and call upon him for advice. We find out he's a consulting detective. A consulting detective. Not not a Scotland Yard detective. Not even a private detective, but a consulting detective. That's what Sherlock Holmes gets up to. Well, what does Watson get up to? Right now, not much, which is one of the things we talked about last time was that, you know, this portrayal of, of Watson is kind of interesting. Um, this being, of course, the original portrayal of Watson, but it's it's an element of Watson that does not get discussed very often, which is that he is so bored. He's so bored. He is, you know, sort of on, uh, he's supposed to be on house rest, not a rest, just he's supposed to be resting at his home um, uh, for his health. Uh, and you know you you take a very you know high functioning doctor someone who uh, can can hack the the stress of being in the military and then you give him nothing to do and no friends with which to do it what does that leave you well someone who could fairly get caught up in obsessions and his current obsession is this very strange man sherlock holmes so that is where we're at right now. Um, I think that's a pretty solid bit of review. And as such, I think we can just jump on in to the next one. What say you, y'all? Are you ready? Now, as per usual, I want to see in chat any discussions that you wish to have. Um, try to keep it spoiler free, but if you are some, uh, if you've never read this before, um, I want you to feel free to jump in with some like strange guesses uh you know if you've got if you've got theories go ahead and put those in chat but uh as always even if i don't jump to the chat right away for everything because I, I try to keep the reads pretty consistent uh even if i don't do that i'm still gonna be reading those after the chapter is over and we will use those to move the discussion along and sort of see what we want to talk about as a group uh proteus spade says don't forget to mention the clues sherlock spotted last time uh regarding rash now this is something... So, Proteus Spade, you're absolutely right. I have neglected to do any review of the crime scene itself. However, this does bring up one of those important points that we sort of learned from um, from uh, Murder on the Orient Express, which is that 
it is really tough to do uh, recaps of some of the clues for some of these things because I can either go through all of them, which would take forever and I would certainly miss some, or if I only go through a few, sometimes I will accidentally put too much emphasis on sort of the right answers. Then again, this is Sherlock, and he is willing to elucidate on some of his sort of more crucial points. We're going to be talking more about that a little bit later. What does what does Sherlock like to investigate? We talked about that last week considerably. But uh, Proteus Spade is absolutely right. Um, at this crime scene, we find that uh, there is a murdered man with the word Rach, Rach, Rache, R-A-C-H-E, written on the wall. Surely it's short for Rachel. But no, Sherlock says it is the German word for revenge. So, y'all, thank you so much for joining me here. Um, if you would like to listen to the previous episodes of this series, you can find those on Spotify. You're looking for Vintage Sidecar. I will be uploading these every week, um, as long as I don't slowly go sort of Lovecraft crazy from all the editing. <laughs> Am I there yet? No. Am I approaching? What? Let's read some Sherlock Holmes. Chapter 4 What John Rance Had to Tell it was one o'clock when we left number three, Lauriston Gardens. Sherlock Holmes led me to the nearest telegraph office, where he dispatched a long telegram. Then, he hailed a cab and ordered the driver to take us to the address given to us by Lestrade. There is nothing like first-hand evidence, he remarked. As a matter of fact, my mind is entirely made up upon the case, but we may as well learn what there is to be learned. <laughs> you amaze me, Holmes said I. Surely you're not as sure as you pretend to be about all these particulars which you give. There's no room for a mistake, he answered. The very first thing which I observed upon arriving was that a cab had made two ruts with its wheels close to the curb. Now, up to last night we've had no rain for a week, so those wheels have left such a deep impression. They must have been there during the night. There were marks of the horse's hooves, too the outline of one of which was clearly more cut in than that of the other three, showing that it was a new shoe, since the cab was there after the rain began, and was not there at any time during the morning, and I've got Gregson's word for that, it shows that it must have been there during the night, and therefore that brought those two individuals to the house. All right, so that seems simple enough, but how about the other man's height? Why, the height of a man, in nine cases out of ten, can be told from the length of his stride. It's a simple calculation enough, though there is no use in my boring you with the figures. I had this fellow's stride, both in the clay outside and the dust within. Then I had a way of checking my calculations. When a man writes on a wall, his instinct leads him to write on a level of his own eyes. Now, that writing was just over six feet from the ground. It was child's play. And his age? I asked. Well, if a man can stride four and a half feet without the smallest effort, he can't quite be in the sear and yellow. 
That was the breadth of a puddle on the garden walk, which he had evidently walked across. Patent leather boots had gone round, and square-toed shoes had hopped over. There is no mystery about it at all. I am simply applying the ordinary life of a few of those precepts on my observations and deductions, which I advocated in that article. Is there anything else that puzzles you? It a fingernails and a trichinopoly, I suggested. The writing on the wall was done with a man's forefinger dipped in blood. My glass allowed me to observe that the plaster had been slightly scratched during it, which would not have been the case if the man's nail had been trimmed. I gathered up some scattered ash from the floor. It was dark in colour and flaky, such as ash is only made by a trichinopoly. I have made a special study of cigar ashes. In fact, I have written a monograph upon the subject. I flatter myself that I can distinguish at a glance the ash of any known brand, either of cigar or tobacco. It is in just such details that the skilled detective differs from the Gregson and Lestrade type. And the florid face? I asked. Well, that was a more daring shot, though I have no doubt that I was right. You must not ask me about that at the state of the present affair. I passed my hand over my brow. Well, my head's in a whirl, I remarked. The more I think about it, the more mysterious it grows. How can these two men, if they were two men, how came they into this empty house? What what's become of the cabman who drove them there? How could one man compel the other to take a poison? Where did that blood come from? What was the object of the murder, since the robbery had no part in it? How came the woman's ring to be there? And above all, why should a second man write up the German word rash before decamping? I confess I cannot see any possible way of reconciling all these facts. My companion smiled approvingly. You sum up the difficulties of the situation succinctly and well, he said. There is still much to obscure. Although I've quite made up my mind on these facts, as to Paul Lestrade's discovery, it is simply a blind intended to put the police upon a wrong track by suggesting socialism and secret societies. It was not done by a German. The A, if you notice, was printed somewhat after the German fashion. Now, a real German invariably prints in the Latin character, so we may safely say that this was not written by one, but a clumsy imitator who overdid his part. It was simply a ruse to divert inquiry to a wrong channel. I'm not going to tell you much more of the case, Doctor. You know a conjurer gets no credit when he's explained all of his tricks, and if I show you too much of my method of working, you will come to the conclusion I'm a very ordinary individual, after all. I shall never do that, I answered. You've brought detection as near to an exact science as it will ever be brought in this world. My companion flushed up with pleasure at my words, and the earnest way in which I uttered them. I had already observed he was as sensitive to flattery on the score of his art as any girl could be of her beauty. "'I'll tell you one other thing,' he said. Peyton Leathers and Square Toes came in the same cab, and they walked down the pathway together as friendly as possible, arm in arm, in all probability. When they got inside, they walked up and down the room. Or, rather, Peyton Leathers stood while Square Toes walked up and down. I could read all of that in the dust, and I could see that as he walked he grew more and more excited.' That is shown by the increased length of his strides. He was talking all the while, working himself up, no doubt, into a fury. Then the tragedy occurred. I I've told you all I know myself now. 
for the rest is mere surmise and conjecture. We have a good working basis, however, on which to start. We must hurry up! I want to go to Halley's concert to hear Norman Neruda this afternoon. This conversation had occurred while our cab had been treading its way through a long succession of dingy streets and dreary byways. In the dingiest and dreariest of them, our driver suddenly came to a stand. That's only cool in there, he said, pointing to a narrow slit in the line of dead-colored brick. You find me here when you come back. Audley Court was not an attractive locality. The narrow passage led us into a quadrangle paved with flags and lined with sordid dwellings. We picked our way among groups of dirty children and through lines of discolored linen until we came to number 46, the door of which was decorated with a small slip of brass on which the name Rance was engraved. On inquiry, we found that the constable was in bed and we were shown into a little front parlor to await his coming. He appeared presently, looking a little irritable at having been disturbed in his slumbers. "'I've made my report at the office,' he said. Holmes took a half-sovereign from his pocket and played with it pensively. "'We thought that we should like to hear it from your own lips,' he said. "'I shall be most happy to tell you anything I can, sir,' the constable answered with his eyes upon the little golden disc. "'Just let us hear it all in your own way, as it occurred.' Rance sat down on the horsehair sofa and knitted his brows as though determined not to omit anything in his narrative. "'I'll tell it to you from the beginning,' he said. "'My time is from ten at night to six in the morning. At eleven there was a fight at the White Hart, but bar that all was quiet on the beat. At one o'clock it began to rain, and I met Harry Murcher, him who's got the Holland Grove beat, and we stood together at the corners of Henrietta Street talking. Presently, about two or a little after that, I thought I'd take a look around and see that all was right down Brixton Road. It were precious dirty and lonely, not a soul did I meet all the way down, though a cab or two went past me. I was strolling down, thinking between ourselves how uncommonly handy a four-a gin hot would be, and suddenly... A glint of a light caught me eye in the window of that same house. Now I knew them houses in Lauriston Gardens was empty on account of him what owns them don't have the drains seen to. Though the very last tenant what lived in him died of the typhoid fever. I was knocked all in a heap therefore at seeing a light in the window and I suspected that something was wrong. When I got to the door you stopped and then you walked back to the garden gate. My companion interrupted. What did you do that for? Rance gave a violent jump and stared at Sherlock Holmes with the utmost amazement on his figures. Well, that's true, sir, he said. Though how you came to know it, heaven only knows. You see, when I got up to the door, it was still and lonesome. And I thought I'd be none the worse to have someone with me. I ain't afeard of anything on this side of the grave, but I thought... Maybe it was him what died of the typhoid, inspecting the drains what killed him. The thought gave me a kind of turn, and I walked back round to see if I could see Murcher's lantern, but there was no sign of him, nor anyone else. There was no one on the street. Not a living soul, sir. Not so much as a dog. Then I pulled myself together. I went back and pushed the door open. All was quiet inside, so I went into the room where the light was a-burning. 
There was a candle flickering on the mantelpiece. A red one. And by its light, I saw... Yes, I know all about what you saw. You walked around the room several times and knelt down by the body and then walked around and tried the kitchen door, and then... John Rance sprang to his feet with a frightened face and suspicion in his eyes. Where was you hid to see all of that? he cried. Seems to me that you know a great deal more than you should. Holmes laughed and threw his card across the table to the constable. Don't get arresting me for murder, he said. I'm one of the hounds and not the wolf. Uh, Mr. Gregson and Mr. Lestrade will answer to that. Go on, though. What did you do next? Rance resumed his seat, without, however, losing his mystified expression. I... I went back to the gate and sounded my whistle. That brought Murcher and two more to my spot. And was the street empty then? Well, it was far as anyone could be of any good goes. What do you mean? The constable's features broadened into a grin. I've seen many a drunk chap in my time, he said, but never anyone so crying drunk as that cove. He was at the gate when I came out, leaning up against the railings and singing at the pitch of his lungs about Columbine's newfangled banner or some such stuff. He couldn't stand, far less help. What sort of man was he? asked Sherlock Holmes. John Rance appeared to be somewhat irritated at this digression. He was an uncommon drunk sort of man, he said. He'd have found himself in the station had we had not been so took up. His face, his dress, didn't you notice them? Holmes broke in impatiently. I should think I did notice him, seeing as I had to prop him up, me and Murcher between us. He were a long chap with a red face, lower part muffled up around. That'll do, cried Holmes. What became of him? We'd had enough to do without looking after him, the policeman said in an aggrieved voice. But where found his way home all right? How was he dressed? A brown overcoat. Had he a whip in his hand? A whip? No. Must have left it behind, muttered my companion. He didn't happen to see or hear a cab after that. No. All right, there's a half-sovereign for you, my companion said, standing up and taking his hat. I'm afraid, Rance, that you will never rise in the force. That head of yours should be used as well for an ornament. You might have gained your sergeant stripes last night. The man whom you held in your hands was the man who holds the clue of this mystery and whom we are seeking. There's no use arguing with this now. I'll simply tell you that it is so. Come along, Doctor. We started off for the cab together, leaving our informant incredulous but obviously uncomfortable. Blithering, blundering fool, Holmes said bitterly as we drove back to our lodgings. Just to think of his having such an uncomparable bit of good luck and not taking advantage of it. I admit, I'm still rather in the dark. It is true that the description of this man tallies with your idea that second party in the mystery, but why should he have come back to the house after leaving it? That, that's not the way of criminals. The ring, man, the ring. That is what he came back for. If we have no other way of catching him, we can always bait our line with the ring. 
I shall have him, Doctor. I'll lay you two to one that I have him. I must thank you for it all. I might not have gone, but for you, and so have missed the finest study I've ever come across. The study in Scarlet, eh? Why shouldn't we use a little art jargon? There's the scarlet thread of murder running through the colourless skein of life, and our duty is to unravel it, and isolate it, and expose every inch of it. And now for lunch. And then for Norman Neruda. Her attack and her bowing are splendid. What's that little thing of Chopin she plays so magnificently? Leaning back in the cab, this amateur bloodhound caroled away like a lark while I meditated upon the many-sidedness of the human mind. There we have it, folks. Chapter 4. Now, we're going to launch in pretty quick into this next one, because like I said, I think we might be able to make some tracks today in this story. And, you know, because we've got so much Sherlock Holmes to read, I don't mind I don't mind kicking it up into a, into a second gear, shall we say. Uh, I kind of had two options. I, I really goosed it. I kind of learned my lesson during... Um, um, Orient Express, wherein if something is divided up into parts, you do not want to split those parts up into multiple streams. Um, uh, or rather, you don't want to have, like, you don't want to do the the end of part one and then one chapter of part two. That That is, it's whack. So, instead of doing the whack thing, uh, we're going to do this thing, uh, which is to say, <laughs> we're going to try, I'm going to try and either do half of the remainder of this part or the entirety of the remainder of this part not three and then one because that's ridiculous uh orly rose says also the uh the absolute impeccable skill of conan doyle amazes me this is an author who has no training in forensics and indeed was one of the uh first if not the first person to suggest ballistic and wound marks to indicate what weapon or bullet made them it's incredible interesting i was not aware of this um <laughs> Proteus Spade says, Sam, my guy, I think the music and our history nerd simply must find you something more Victorian and less early 30s jazz. It's good and mysterious, but it makes me squint. As well it may, I, I looked for quite a few options, and um, uh, as far as my current assets goes, um, which is to say filmmusic.io, that is where I find most of my music, um, I was having the devil's own time tr trying to find something that is evocative and then could also be clipped into these short little stings that I do at the beginning and end of the episodes. Uh, I'm aware that it is um, uh, anachronous, but I, 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 I tell you, I tell you, I hunted for hours. <laughs> I was not able to find anything that really worked like I wanted it to work. So, went, went. Um, folks, we are going to jump in. Uh, hold on, I'm getting a phone call here. Um, I will be joining you in just a moment. All right, and we're back. 
<laughs> yeah, Paradise Spade, it's it's surprising how little there is that sort of feels right. I would have loved, I found something that sort of almost worked on that uh, kind of Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock uh, uh, sort of motif, but eh, it was too, like, somber and quiet, um, didn't have enough energy to it, and so I decided to forego that. But that's the only other option that I had found other than this one that really seemed to work. Eh, there's that. Um, so, everybody, thank you so much for joining me here. Uh, a quick chatter break, a tiny bit of review, and then we're going to jump into our next chapter. So, uh, chatter break question, I'm just going to pose one to you and we're going to roll on through. Sherlock. We have seen him be, um, you know, perhaps impatient with folks in the past and uh, even a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit quick, a little bit snippy, but in this instance, he stands straight up and tells the detective that he's never going to be, he's never going to be much good in the police force. Now, that I think we could probably consider just downright harsh. What do we think causes this in Sherlock, and how do we think that it affects his prospects as someone who really needs information from people all the time? There's our chatter break question. Um, meanwhile, our spot of review, Sherlock and Watson head down to visit uh, Detective, or excuse me, Constable Rance. Uh, Rance is, of course, the uh, the constable who discovered the body and who discovered the crime scene. And we find that things just about went about how uh, Sherlock said, except for one thing. There was someone out in the street, a someone who was terribly drunk, and uh, this would have been a little while after the murder had been committed. And so, this drunk, Sherlock insists, is the key to this whole thing. Perhaps the perpetrator, but perhaps just someone who holds the, the secrets to unraveling this case. And Watson, I think, uh, adroitly asks, why would they come back? To which Sherlock responds, the ring. That is where we are, as we launch into Chapter 5. Chapter 5. Our advertisement brings a visitor. Our morning's exertions had been too much for my weak health, and I was tired out on the sofa. After Holmes' departure for the concert, I lay down upon the sofa and endeavored to get a couple of hours sleep. It was a useless attempt. My mind had been all too much excited by all that had occurred and the strangest fancies and surmises crowded into it. Every time I closed my eyes, I saw before me the distorted, baboon-like countenance of the murdered man. So sinister was the impression which that face had produced upon me that I found it difficult to feel anything but gratitude for him who had removed its owner from the world. If ever human features bespoke vice of the most malignant type, they were certainly those of Enoch J. Drebber of Cleveland. Still, I recognized that justice must be done and that the depravity of the victim was no condonement in the eyes of the law. The more I thought of it, the more extraordinary did my companion's hypothesis seem, that the man had been poisoned. I remember how he had sniffed his lips, and had no doubt that he had detected something which had given rise to the idea. Then again, if not poison, what had caused the man's death, since there was neither wound nor marks of strangulation? 
but on the other hand, whose blood was that which lay so thickly upon the floor? There were no signs of a struggle, nor had the victim any weapon with which he might have wounded an antagonist. As long as all these questions were unsolved, I felt that sleep would be no easy manner, either for Holmes or myself. His quiet, self-confident manner convinced me that he had already formed a theory which explained all the facts, though what it was I could not for an instant conjecture. He was very late in returning, so late that I knew that the concert would not have detained him all that time. Dinner was on the table before he appeared. It was magnificent, he said as he took his seat. Do you remember what Darwin said about music? He claims that the power of producing and appreciating it existed among the human race long before the power of speech was arrived at. Perhaps that is why we are so subtly influenced by it. There are vague memories in our souls of those misty centuries when the world was in its childhood. Well, that's a rather broad idea, I remarked. One's ideas must be as broad as nature if we are to interpret nature, he answered. What's the matter? You're not quite looking yourself. This Brixton Road affair has upset you. Uh, well, to, to tell the truth, yeah, it has, I said. I ought to be more case-hardened after my Afghan experiences. I saw my own comrades act to pieces at my wand without losing my nerve. I can understand. There is a mystery about this which stimulates the imagination. Where there is no imagination, there is no horror. Have you seen the evening paper? No. It gives a fairly good account of the affair. It does not mention the fact that when the man was rising up, a woman's wedding ring fell upon the floor. It's just as well that it does not. Why? Look at this advertisement, he answered. I have sent one to every paper this morning, immediately after the affair. He threw the paper across to me, and I glanced at the place he indicated. It was the first announcement in the found column. In Brixton Road this morning, it ran, a plain gold wedding ring found in a roadway between the White Hart Tavern and Holland Grove. Applied Dr. Watson, 221B Baker Street, between 8 and 9 this evening. Excuse my using your name, he said. If I'd use my own, some of these dunderheads would recognize it and want to meddle in the affair. That's all right, I answered. But supposing anyone applies, I've got no ring. Oh, yes, you have, he said, handing it to me. This will do very well. It's almost a facsimile. And who do you expect will answer this advertisement? by the man in the brown coat. Our florid friend in the square toes. If he does not come himself, he will send an accomplice. Would he not consider it too dangerous? Not at all. If my view of the case is correct, and I've got every reason to believe that it is, this man would rather drop everything, risk anything, than lose the ring. According to my notion, he dropped it while stooping over Drebber's body, and did not miss it at the time. After leaving the house, he discovered his loss and hurried back but found the police already in possession, owing to his own folly in leaving the candle burning. He had to pretend to be drunk in order to allay the suspicions which he might have aroused by his appearance at the gate. Now put yourself in this man's place. On thinking the matter over, it must have occurred to him that it was possible that he had lost the ring on the road after leaving the house. What did he do then? He would eagerly look out for the evening papers in hope of seeing it among the articles found. His eye, of course, would light upon this, he would be overjoyed. Why should he fear a trap? 
There would be no reason in his eyes why finding of the ring should be connected with the murder. He would come. He will come. You shall see him within an hour? All right, and then? I asked. Uh, you can leave me to deal with him then. Have you got any arms? Uh, I've got my old service revolver and a few cartridges. You'd better clean it and load it. He will be a desperate man, and though I shall take him unawares, it is well to be ready for anything. I went to my bedroom and followed his advice. When I returned with the pistol, the table had been cleared, and Sherlock Holmes was engaged in his favorite occupation of scraping upon his violin. "'The plot thickens,' he said, as I entered. "'I've just had an answer to my American telegram. My view of the case was the correct one.' "'And that is?' I asked eagerly. "'My fiddle would be better for new strings,' he remarked. "'Put your pistol in your pocket. When the fellow comes to speak?' Um, talk to him in an ordinary way. Leave the rest to me. Don't frighten him by looking at him too hard. Well, it's eight o'clock now, I said, glancing at my watch. Yes, he will probably be here in a few minutes. Open the door slightly. That will do. Now, put the key on the inside. Thank you. This is a queer old book I picked up at a stall yesterday. Le Jour Intergente. Published in Latin at Liege in the Lowlands in 1642. Charles's head was still firm on his shoulders when this little brown-backed volume was struck off. Who's the printer? Philippe Lacroix, whoever he might have been. On the flyleaf, in very faded ink, is written, Ex Libris Guillaume White. I wonder who William White was. Some pragmatical 17th century lawyer, I presume. His writing has a legal twist about it. Oh, here comes a man, I think. As he spoke, there was a sharp ring at the bell. Sherlock Holmes rose softly and moved his chair in the direction of the door. We heard the servant pass along the hall and the sharp click of a latch as she opened it. Does Dr. Watson live here? asked a clear but rather harsh voice. We could not hear the servant's reply, but the door closed and someone began to ascend the stairs. The footfall was an uncertain and shuffling one. A look of surprise passed over the face of my companion as he listened to it. It came slowly along the passage, and there was a feeble tap upon the door. "'Come in!' I cried. At my summons, instead of a man of violence whom we expected, a very old and wrinkled woman hobbled into the apartment. She appeared to be dazzled by the sudden blaze of light, and after dropping a curtsy, she stood blinking at us with her bleared eyes and fumbling in her pocket with nervous, shaky fingers. I glanced at my companion, and his face had assumed such a disconsolate expression it was all I could do to keep my countenance. To keep my countenance. <laughs> to keep my countenance? That might be one of my all-time greatest misspeaks. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Sherlock looked so bummed out. It was all I could do to keep my continence, which, <laughs> if any of y'all are sort of um, if any of y'all are unfamiliar with such a word, 
uh, I will simply reference you to the word incontinence. <laughs> oh, man. It was all I could do to keep my countenance. The old crone drew out an evening paper and pointed at her advertisement. It's this has just brought me, good gentleman, she said, dropping another curtsy. A gold wedding ring on the Brixton Road. It belongs to my girl Sally, as was married only this time twelve months, which her husband is steward aboard a union boat. And what he'd say if he come home and found her without the ring, it's more than I could think. He's been short enough at the best of times, but especially when he's had the drink. If it please you, she went to the circus last night along with... Is that a ring? I asked. Oh, the Lord be thanked, cried the old woman. Sally will be a glad woman this night. That's the ring. And what may your address be? I inquired, taking up a pencil. Thirteen Duncan Street, Houndsditch. It's a weary way from here. The Brixton Road does not lie between any circus and Houndsditch, said Sherlock Holmes sharply. The old woman faced around and looked keenly at him from under her little red-rimmed eyes. The gentleman asked me for my address, she said. Sally lives in lodgings at 3 Mayfield Place, Peckham. And your name is? My name is Sawyer. Hers is Dennis, which Tom Dennis married her, and a smart, clean lad too, as long as he's at sea and no steward in the company more thought of. But when he's on shore, what with the women and what with the liquor shops... Here's your ring, Mrs. Sawyer, I interrupted, in obedience to a sign from my companion. It clearly belongs to your daughter, and I'm glad to be able to restore it to the rightful owner. With many mumbled blessings and protestations of gratitude, the old crone packed it away in her pocket and shuffled off down the stairs. Sherlock Holmes sprang to his feet the moment she was gone and rushed to his room. He returned a few seconds later, enveloped in ulster and a cravat. "'I'll follow her,' he said hurriedly. "'She must be an accomplice, and will lead me to him. Wait for me.' The hall door had hardly slammed behind our visitor before Sherlock Holmes had descended the stair. Looking through the window, I could see her walking feebly along the other side, while her pursuer dogged somewhat behind. All right, either this whole theory is incorrect, I thought to myself, or else he will now be led into the very heart of this mystery. There was no need for him to ask me to wait up for him, for I felt that sleep was impossible until I heard the result of his adventure. It was close upon nine when he set out. I had no idea how long he might be, but sat stolidly puffing my pipe and skipping over the pages of Henri Mauger's Vie de Bohème. Ten o'clock passed, and I heard the footsteps of the maid as they pattered off to bed. Eleven, and the more stately tread of the landlady passed my door, bound for some destination. It was close upon twelve before I heard the sound of his latchkey. The instant he entered, I saw by his face that he had not been successful. Amusement and chagrin seemed to be struggling for the mastery until the former suddenly carried the day, and he burst out into a hearty laugh. <laughs> oh, 
I wouldn't have the Scotland Yarders know it for the world, he cried, dropping into his chair. I have chaffed them so much that they would never let me hear the end of it. I can afford to laugh, though, because I know that I will be even with them in the long run. All right, what is it then? I asked. I don't mind telling you the story myself. That creature had gone a little way when she began to limp and show every sign of being footsore. Presently, she came to a halt and hailed a four-wheeler, which was passing. I managed to be close to her, enough to hear the address, but I need not have been so anxious, for she sang it out so loud that people on the other side of the street might have heard. Drive to 13 Duncan Street, Houndsditch, she cried. This begins to look genuine, I thought, and having seen her safely inside, I perched myself behind. That's an art which every detective should be an expert at. Well, away we rattled and never drew rein until we reached the street in question. I hopped off before we came to the door and strolled down the street in an easy, lounging way. I saw the cab pull up, the driver jump down, and I saw him open the door and stand there expectantly. Nothing came out, though. Then I reached him, and he was groping about frantically in the cab, and was giving vent to the finest sort of collected oaths I've ever listened to. There was no sign or trace of his passenger, and I fear it will be some time before he gets his fare. On inquiring at number 13, we found that the house belonged to a respectable paper hanger named Keswick, and no one had the name of Sawyer or Dennis. Nor had they been heard of. You don't mean to say, I cried in amazement, that that tottering, feeble old woman was able to get out of the cab while it was in motion without either you or the driver seeing her. Old woman be damned, said Sherlock Holmes sharply. We were the old women to be so taken in. It must have been a young man and an active one too, beside being an incomparable actor. The get-up was inimitable. He saw that he was followed, no doubt, and used this means of giving me the slip. It shows me that the man that we are after was not as lonely as I imagined him to be, but has friends who are ready to risk something for him. Now, Doctor, you are looking done up. Take my advice and turn in. I certainly was feeling very weary, so I obeyed his injunction. I left Holmes seated in front of the smoldering fire, and long into the watches of the night I heard the low, melancholy wailings of the violin, and knew he was still pondering over the strange problem which he had set himself to unravel. <laughs> Folks, thank you very, very much for joining me here today. Um, I, can I do it? Can I do it? I think I can. Uh, I'm going to keep charging right on through. I'm going to take a quick break for the sake of my voice. Um, we're going to come back, and when we do, we're going to talk about some of our Chatterbreak questions. The plot thickens. Sherlock Holmes is on the trail of not just one, one you know, individual here, but someone who's got friends, friends who are willing to risk things for him. Now, what would they be doing here, and what significance does the ring have? to send an actor imitating an old woman, a pretty talented actor if Sherlock is to be forgiven a bit for his confusion. Orly Rose says, train got derailed over here. <laughs> oh, it's going somewhere all right, says Sander. Folks, thank you very, very much for joining me. 
here's my question. As we approach the end of part one, what do we think is the significance of the ring? Right now, of course, we, we don't have a ton more to work off of than we did before regarding Sherlock and Watson. Um, I want to talk about those as we launch on in, but what do we think the significance of the ring is? <laughs> oh boy, oh boy. Career Six. If you can find me some less anachronistic music, I, I wouldn't mind, but I also don't mind sort of setting this in a place outside of time. I kind of like, other than the occasional you know, mention of, of horses. I kind of like the idea that this could kind of take place whenever. Whenever it might be. Eh. What can you do? Uh, folks, I'm going to be back in five minutes, at which point we are going to continue with Chapter 6. Tobias Gregson shows what he can do. I'll see you in five, folks. Bye-bye. Here I am, folks. I'm back. Watch out. As you can hear, so that this this one that I used for the lobby music was the only, kind of the only other song that I listened to and thought, okay, that sounds that sounds like it could kind of be right. Um, but it, you can hear like how somber it is, and I didn't want to go so somber, so eh, I decided to go against it. Um, but folks, we had a chatter a chatter break question: What is the significance of this ring? What do we think? Um, <laughs> Uh, we, of course, have some very, very good references to our other current read-through, which, if y'all do not know, we are reading Lord of the Rings over on Flying Sidecar. This, of course, being Vintage Sidecar. That happens on Thursdays right now. This happens on Tuesdays right now. Get with it. Orly Rose says, well, of course, the purpose of the ring? Malice, cruelty, and the will to dominate all life. Ooh, and can I tell you something right now? I suddenly got a, like... Like, literally, as I was speaking that sentence, I got a stomachache. Okay, I'm gonna try and push through here, because typically they go away just fine. My stomach is one thing I typically don't worry too much about, because if, it, if it's whack, it's not whack for very long. Um, I've, got a, I've, got a, uh, I've got a gut like a cast iron skillet. A cast iron cauldron. <laughs> what, what would be a good way to parlay that into, like, a fun fantasy character name? Like, what title would that person hold? Cast Iron Gut Knight is a little bit long-winded. Purdy Spade says, listen, I just read Dodger a bit, so clearly the ring is to do with international scandal and attempted murder and kidnapping. Now, we already know a decent bit of this is true, right? International scandal, the murdered man here in this abandoned house in England is from Cleveland, Ohio, so... International Scandal is already sort of on its way, um, and unfortunately, Sherlock is not willing to share the results of his telegram to the states. Why not? Interesting. Okay. Um... Let me see. Let me see. Bearden says, didn't it say the ring was a Freemason one? Yes, a cover-up. Maybe a ritual. He's writing a suspense novel. <laughs> it is, uh, let's see, Freemasons, a scapegoat in the 1880s? Say it ain't so. Yeah, so right now, uh, I actually do not know sort of, I know the Freemasons were active, but I don't know how active they were in the 1880s. Um, I have to assume that the Freemasons sort of like early, uh, they're like, they're Peak prominence was probably right around the turn of the century, 1800s to 1900s. I'm guessing. 
Right? Or wait, hold on. Is that the turn of the century even? Why do I feel like that's wrong? Turn of the... Yeah, turn of the century. Okay. Um, Ortley Rose says, I think the ring is going to somehow come back to an obsession or possibly a the one that got away situation. I've read all these stories, but this one, it's been a while. I know they changed the plot and the motives for the recent BBC series, which I have recently seen, so I don't want to dig in too deep and reveal anything. That is one of the nice things about this is that, yeah, we can have experienced uh, Sherlock Holmes in various ways, but there have been enough changes over time that we don't find ourselves thinking like, oh yeah, this is exactly that, this is the identical thing to that thing, etc., etc. So... Um, Sandra says, my thoughts mostly go to Lord of the Rings on the question, and those are not the answers for today. Indeed. Indeed. So, folks, a tiny spot of review, and we shall launch into our next chapter. Um, Review. Watson is all caught up in this mystery. This bored doctor on uh, what is supposed to be rest, uh, well, turns out... He is feeling a little less restful than he should be. Uh, He is following Sherlock hither and yon to crime scenes and investigations and interrogations. They have questioned uh, Rance, the constable on duty, and found that there was a drunk somewhere on the street that night that had come back for something. Sherlock posits that it was the ring. That is the thing of significance. And so he puts an article in the newspaper indicating, hey, got this ring out here. Got this ring out here. Um, and, uh, uh, they wait for whoever comes to retrieve it, because apparently that is something of vital importance, something that the perpetrator or the people associated with the perpetrator would risk a lot to come and retrieve. So, they've got this advertisement in the newspaper, and someone does indeed come to retrieve the ring. It is this drunk man- wait, hold on. That's an old lady. What's this old lady doing here? Well, she shows up, she gets the ring, um, she tells them where she lives in case they need to contact her again, and she heads off. Sherlock, throwing on a light disguise, follows her immediately, and upon basically yelling, follow that cab, he follows that cab, and upon the cab arriving, the cab driver gets out, and there is no passenger. The cab driver's freaking out. Sherlock is uh, unhappy with this turn of events. What is the deal here? How did this person disappear? Sherlock returns and discusses it briefly with Watson. Um, He says that it must not have been an old woman, but a very good actor and a young man to jump out of a moving cab without me seeing. A young man in disguise, and apparently our perpetrator has got friends. That is where we are at. I think the... uh, I think our... Our adventures here are only just beginning. Let's check out chapter six. Chapter six. Tobias Gregson shows what he can do. The papers next day were full of the Brixton mystery, as they termed it. Each had a long account of the affair, and some had leaders upon it in addition. There was some information in them which was new to me. 
I still retain in my scrapbook numerous clippings and extracts bearing upon the case. Here is a condensation of a few of them. Uh, I feel like I need some sort of like flubber dentures to help me with this endeavor. The Daily Telegraph remarked that in the history of crime there had seldom been a tragedy which presented stranger features. The German name of the victim, the absence of all other motive, and the sinister inscription on the wall all pointed to its perpetration by political refugees and revolutionists. The socialists had many branches in America, and the deceased had, no doubt, infringed their unwritten laws and been tracked down by them. Their unwritten laws, like... You shouldn't have to pay $400 for insulin. Or the socialists will get you. <laughs> After alluding airily to the Vemgricht, Aqua Tefana, Carbonari, and Marchioness de Brunvier, the Darwinian theory, the principles of Malthus, and the Ratcliffe Highway murders, the article concluded by admonishing the government and advocating a closer watch over foreigners in England. The Standard commented upon the fact that the lawless outrages of the sort usually occurred under a liberal administration. They arose from the unsettling of the minds of the masses and the consequent weakening of all authority. The deceased was an American gentleman who had been residing for some weeks in the metropolis. He had stayed at the boarding house of Madame Charpentier in Torquay Terence, Camberwell. He was accompanied in his travels by his private secretary, Mr. Joseph Stangerson. The two bade adieu to their landlady upon Tuesday the 4th, and departed to Euston Station with the avowed intention of catching the Liverpool Express. They were afterwards seen together upon the platform. Nothing more is known of them until Mr. Drebber's body was, as was recorded, discovered in an empty house in the Brixton Road, many miles from Euston. How he came there, or how he met his fate, are questions which are still involved in this mystery. Nothing is known about the whereabouts of Stangerson. We are glad to learn that Mr. Lestrade and Mr. Gregson of Scotland Yard are both engaged upon the case, and it is confidently anticipated that these well-known officers will speedily throw light upon the matter. The Daily News observed that there was no doubt as to the crime being a political one. The despotism and hatred of liberalism which animated the continental governments had had the effect of driving to our shores a number of men who might have made excellent citizens, were they not soured by the recollection of all that they had undergone. Among these men was a stringent code of honor, any infringement of which was punishable by death. Every effort should be made to find the secretary, Stangerson, and to ascertain some particulars of the habits of the deceased. A great step had been gained by the discovery of the address and the house which he had boarded, the result of which was entirely due to the acuteness and energy of Mr. Gregson of Scotland Yard. Sherlock Holmes and I read these notices together at breakfast, and they appeared to afford him considerable amusement. I told you that whatever happened, Lestrade and Gregson would be sure to score. Well, it depends on how it turns out, doesn't it? Oh, bless you, it doesn't matter in the least. If the man is caught, it will be on account of their exertions. If he escapes, it will be in spite of their exertions. It's heads I win, tails you lose. Whatever they do, they will have followers. Une sorte trouve toujours un plus sot que la mer. What on earth is this? I cried. For this moment, there came a pattering of many steps in the hall upon the stairs, accompanied by audible expressions of disgust on the part of our landlady. It's the Baker Street Division of the Detective Police Force, said my companion gravely, and as he spoke, there rushed into the room half a dozen of the dirtiest and most ragged street children that I ever clapped my eyes on. 
attention, cried Holmes in a sharp tone, and the six little scoundrels stood in line like so many disreputable statuettes. In the future you shall send up Wiggins alone to report, and the rest of you must wait in the street. Have you found it, Wiggins? No, sir, we ain't, said one of the youths. I hardly expected that you would. You must keep on until you do, though. Here are your wages. He handed each of them a shilling. Now off you go and come back with a better report next time. He waved his hand and they scampered away downstairs like so many rats, and we heard their shrill voices next moment in the street. There's more work to be got out of one of those little beggars than out of the dozen of the force, Holmes remarked. The mere sight of an official-looking person seals men's lips. These youngsters, however, they go everywhere and hear everything. Sharp as needles, too. All they want is organization. Is it on this Brixton case that you're employing them? I asked. Yes. There's a point to which I wish to ascertain. It's merely a matter of time. Oh, hello. We're going to hear some news now, with a vengeance. Here is Gregson coming down the road with a beatitude written upon every feature of his face. Bound for us, I know. Yes, he's stopping. There he is. There was a violent peal at the bell, and a few seconds, the fair-haired detective came up the stairs, three steps at a time, and burst into our sitting room. My dear fellow, he cried, wringing Holmes's unresponsive hand. Congratulate me. I've made the whole thing clear as day. A shade of anxiety seemed to cross my companion's expressive face. Do you mean that you're on the right track? he asked. The right track? Why, sir, we've got the man under lock and key. And his name is? Arthur Charpentier, sub-lieutenant in Her Majesty's Navy, cried Gregson, pompously rubbing his fat hands and inflating his chest. Sherlock Holmes gave a sigh of relief and relaxed into a smile. Take your seat and try one of these cigars, he said. We're anxious to know how you managed it. Will you have some whiskey and water? I don't mind if I do, the detective answered. The tremendous exertions which I've been through during the last day or two have worn me out. Not so much bodily exertion, you understand, as a strain on the mind. You will appreciate that, Mr. Sherlock Holmes, for we are both brain workers. You do me too much honour, said Holmes gravely. Let us hear how you arrived at this most gratifying result. The detective seated himself in the armchair and puffed complacently at his cigar. Then suddenly he slapped his thigh in a paroxysm of amusement. The fun of it is, <laughs> he cried. That old fool Lestrade who thinks himself so smart he's gone off on the wrong track altogether. <laughs> he's after the secretary, Stangerson, who's got no more to do with the crime than a babe on board. I've got no doubt that he'll have caught him by this time. The idea tickled Gregson so much he laughed until he choked. I'll tell you about it. Of course, Dr. Watson, this is certainly between ourselves. Now, and how did you get your clue? I'll tell you about it. Of course, Dr. Watson, this is strictly between ourselves. The first difficulty which we had to contend with was the finding of his American antecedents. Some people would have waited until their advertisements were answered, or until parties came forward and volunteered information. This was not Tobias Gregson's way of going to work. You remember the hat beside the dead man's? Yes, said Holmes. By John Underwood and Sons, 129 Camberwell Road. Gregson looked quite crestfallen. I had no idea that you noticed that. Had you been there before? 
No? <laughs> cried Gregson in a relieved voice. You should never neglect a chance, however small it may seem. To a great mind, nothing is little, remarked Holmes sententiously. Well, I went to Underwood, and I asked him if he had sold a hat of that size and description. He looked over his books and came upon it at once. He had sent that hat to Mr. Drebber, residing at Charpentier's boarding establishment, Torquay Terrace. Thus, I got his address. Smart. It's very smart, murmured Sherlock Holmes. The next, I called upon Madame Charpentier, continued the detective. I found her very pale and distressed. Her daughter was in the room too. An uncommonly fine girl she is too, looking red about the eyes, and her lips trembled as I spoke to her. That did not escape my notice. I began to smell a rat. You know the feeling, Sherlock Holmes, when they come upon the right scent. The kind of thrill you get in your nerves. Have you heard of the mysterious death of your late boarder, Mr Enoch J. Drebber of Cleveland? I asked. The mother nodded. She didn't seem to be able to get out a word. The daughter burst into tears. I felt more than ever that these people knew something of the matter. At what o'clock did Mr Drebber leave your house for the train? I asked. At eight o'clock, she said, gulping in her throat and keeping down their agitation. This secretary, Mr Stangerson, said that there were two trains, one at 9.15, one at 11. He was to catch the first. And what was the last time you saw of him? A terrible change came over this woman's face as I asked the question. Her features turned perfectly livid. It was some seconds before she could get out the single word, yes. And when it did come, it was in a husky, unnatural tone. And there was silence for a moment. And then the daughter spoke in a calm, clear voice. No good can ever come of falsehood, mother, she said. Let's be frank with the gentleman. We did see Mr. Drebber again. Oh, God forgive you, cried Madame Charpentier, throwing up her hands and sinking back into her chair. You've murdered your brother. Arthur would rather that we spoke the truth, said the girl firmly. You best tell me what this is all about, I said. Half confidences are worse than none. Besides, you do not know as much as we know of it. On your head be it, cried her mother, and then turning to me, she said, I will tell you all, sir, do not imagine that my agitation on behalf of my son arises from any fear, lest he should have a hand in this terrible affair. He is utterly innocent of it. My dread is, however, that in your eyes, and in the eyes of others, he may appear to be compromised. That, however, is surely impossible. His high character, his profession, his antecedents would all forbid it. Your best way is to make a clean breast of the facts, I answered. Depend upon it, if your son is innocent, he will be none the worse. Perhaps, Alice, you'd better leave us all together, she said, as her daughter withdrew. Now, sir, she continued, I've got no intention of telling you all this, but since my poor daughter has disclosed it, I've got no alternative. Having once decided to speak, I will tell you everything without omitting anything in particular. That's your wisest course, said I. <laughs> she said, Mr. Drebber had been with us nearly three days. He and the secretary, Mr. Stangerson, had been travelling on the continent. I noticed a Copenhagen label on each of their trunks, showing that they had been in their last stopping place there, Copenhagen. 
Stangerson was a quiet, reserved man, but his employer, I'm sorry to say, was far otherwise. He was coarse in his habits and brutish in his ways. The very night of his arrival. He became very much worse for drink, and indeed, after twelve o'clock in the day, he could hardly ever be seen to be sober. His manners toward maidservants were disgustingly free and familiar. Worst of all, he speedily assumed the same attitude toward my daughter, Alice, and spoke to her on more than one occasion in a way which, fortunately, she was too innocent to understand. On one occasion... He actually seized her in his arms and embraced her, an outrage which caused his own secretary to reproach him for his unmanly conduct. Oh, but why do you stand all this? I asked. I suppose you can get rid of your boarders when you wish. Mrs. Charpentier blushed at my pertinent question. Would to God that I'd given him notice the very day that he came, she said. But it was a sore temptation. They were paying a pound a day each, £14 a week, and this is slack season. I'm a widow, and my boy in the Navy has cost me much. I grudge to lose the money. I acted for the best. This lad was too much, however, and I gave him notice to leave on account of it. That was his reason of going. Well, I said. She said, my heart grew light when I saw him drive away. My son was on leave just now, but I did not tell him anything about this, for his temper is violent and he was passionately fond of his sister. When I closed the door behind them, a load seemed to be lifted from my mind. Alas, in less than an hour, there was a ring at a bell and I learned Mr. Drebber had returned. He was much excited and evidently the worse for drink. He forced his way into the room, where I was sitting with my daughter, and made some incoherent remark about having missed his train. And then he turned to Alice, and before my very face, proposed to her that she should fly with him. You are of age, he said, and there is no law to stop you. I've got money enough to spare. Never mind the old girl here, but come along with me straight away. You shall live like a princess. Poor Alice was so frightened that she shrunk away from him. But he got her by the wrist and endeavoured to draw her toward the door. I screamed and at that moment my son Arthur came into the room. What happened then? I don't know. I heard oaths and the confused sounds of a scuffle. I was too terrified to raise my head. When I looked up, I saw Arthur standing in the doorway laughing with a stick in his hand. I don't think that fine fellow will be troubling us again, he said. I'll just go after him and see what he does with himself. With those words... He took his hat and started off down the street. The next morning we heard of Mr. Drebber's mysterious death. This statement came from Mrs. Charpentier's lips with many gasps and pauses. At times she spoke so low I could hardly catch the words. I made shorthand notes of all she said, however, so that there should be no possibility of mistake. Well, it's quite exciting, said Sherlock Holmes with a yawn. <sighs> What, what happened next? Well, uh, when Mrs. Charpentier paused, the detective continued, I saw that the whole case hung upon one point. I fixed her with my eye, in a way which I've always found to be effective with women, and I asked her what hour her son returned. I don't know, she answered. You don't know, I said. No, he's got a latchkey, he let himself in. 
After you went to bed? Yes. When did you go to bed? About eleven. So your son was gone at least two hours? Yes. Possibly four or five? Yes. What was he doing during that time? And she said, I don't know. Turning white to her very lips. Of course, after that, there was nothing more to be done. I found out where Lieutenant Charpentier was, took two officers with me and arrested them. When I touched him on his shoulder and warned him to come quietly with us, he answered us bold as brass, I suppose you're arresting me for being concerned in the death of that scoundrel Drebber. He said that. He said we had said nothing about it to him. So, his alluding to it made a most suspicious aspect. Very, said Holmes. He still carried that heavy stick which the mother describes him leaving with, following Drebber. It was a stout oak cudgel. What is your theory, then? Well, <laughs> my theory is that he followed Drebber as far as Brixton Road. When there, a fresh altercation arose between them, in which Drebber received a blow from the stick in the pit of the stomach, perhaps, which killed him without leaving any mark. The night was so wet, no one was about, so Charpentier dragged the body of his victim into the empty house. After the candle and the blood and the writing on the wall, the ring, there may be tricks to throw the police under the wrong scent. All right, well done, said Holmes in an encouraging voice. Really, Gregson, you are getting along. We shall make something of you yet. I flatter myself that I managed it rather neatly, the detective answered proudly. The young man volunteered a statement in which he said that after following Drebber some time, the latter perceived him and took a cab in order to get away from him. On his way home, he met an old shipmate and took a long walk with him. On being asked where his old shipmate lived, he was unable to give a satisfactory reply. I think the whole case fits together uncommonly well. What amuses me is to think of Lestrade, who had sorted off by the wrong scent. <laughs> I'm afraid he's not going to make much of it. Right, bad Jove, here's the man himself. <laughs> It was indeed Lestrade, who had ascended the stairs while they were talking and had now entered the room. The assurance and jauntiness which generally marked his demeanour and dress were, however, wanting. His face was disturbed and troubled, while his clothes were disarranged and untidy. He had evidently come in with the intention of consulting with Sherlock Holmes for perceiving his colleague. He appeared to be embarrassed and put out. He stood in the centre of the room, fumbling nervously with his hat and uncertain what to do. This is a most extraordinary case, he said at last. A most incomprehensible affair. <laughs> you find it so, Mr. Lestrade, cried Gregson triumphantly. I thought that you'd come to that conclusion. Have you managed to find a secretary, Mr. Joseph Stangerson? The secretary, Mr. Joseph Stangerson, said Lestrade gravely, was murdered. At Halliday's private hotel about six o'clock this morning. Ha <laughs> ha
<laughs> Joseph Stangerson has been murdered at a hotel this morning. The murderer is still out there. Or multiple murders? Is this revenge? Is this indeed the revenge marked upon the wall? What is happening in this case? Very exciting. Very exciting indeed. Now, let's talk about some of these supporting characters. Gregson and Lestrade. We're going to talk about them for just a moment before we move on to our next and final chapter of the day. Uh, because now that I've done three out of the four chapters in this part, I cannot do anything except for finish it. I'm not going to get into that mess again. Gregson and Lestrade. Gregson and Lestrade have, uh, thus far, been sort of adversarial to one another. They're in competition, right? We don't know how friendly this competition is. So far, it seems like it very well could be, like, just sort of, you know, fairly healthy, like, workplace competition, um, you know, trying to trying to outdo the other in, in performance of their duties. But we find now that uh, Gregson, at the very least... You know, we maybe Lestrade has got a little bit more, uh, a little bit more mustard under his saddle. I have no idea what that means. Please forgive me for saying it. Um, he's got a little bit more mustard under his saddle, but we know Gregson at the very least. He is, he's willing to fly off a little bit. He has decided that he has solved this whole thing and. Taking this to Sherlock, he has come here to sort of gloat over the fact that, oh yeah, <laughs> I've got this. Meanwhile, Lestrade's running around trying to find this Stangerson guy. And then Lestrade comes in and says that Stangerson has been murdered. Indicating that probably, probably Gregson is not on the right track. But we shall see. I have to step away for just a moment. I shall be right back. I'm gonna, I'm gonna put us back to the wait screen here, but like I said, I'll be back in just a moment. All right, gang, I'm back. Hello, Timberwolf says, quite late to the party, but loving it so far. Been a long time since I caught a live stream. So grateful I can listen on Spotify. Gets me through some tough work days. Yes, indeed, Timberwolf. And do not forget, folks, if you use the links command, you can find the link to the link tree at any time. That will bring you to not only Discord, but also a, an additional link tree wherein I have assembled all of the many links that are useful for people trying to find this stuff. Um, because we've only just uploaded the first episodes of a few things. They're not in there like today, but like tomorrow they're going to be in there. Um, but if you're looking for this particular series, you want to get caught up on Sherlock Holmes, go ahead and head over to Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts and look for Vintage Sidecar. There we go. All right, my good folks, because I'm starting to run a little bit behind now, let's launch into our fourth and final chapter of the day. A spot of review. Um, Sherlock and Watson are investigating. Um, they've gone to the crime scene. They have found this ring. They have offered it as a reward to try and catch whoever comes for it. They have lost whoever came for it. Um, someone who Sherlock posits was a young man and a, an adept actor. Um, dressed and disguised as an old woman um, who did come to retrieve a false ring and then lost Sherlock in the pursuit, somehow jumping out of a moving cab or something. And now uh, we find that Detective Gregson has blown this whole case wide open and sort of come to Sherlock to gloat partially over Lestrade, I'm sure, and yet Part of it must be to sort of say, hey, Sherlock, got this one without your help, didn't we? We've done it, by golly. Until which time, of course, Lestrade wanders in, looking distraught, and says, hey, you know how you've got somebody in custody right now? Well, 
the person I was looking for got murdered at six o'clock this morning. That's where we're at. But how could such a thing come to pass if Gregson really did have the right man in custody? Chapter 7. Light in the Darkness The intelligence with which Lestrade greeted us was so momentous and so unexpected that we were all three fairly dumbfoundered. Gregson sprang out of his chair and upset the remainder of his whiskey and water. I stared in silence at Sherlock Holmes, whose lips were compressed and his brows drawn together over his eyes. Stangerson, too, he muttered. The plot thickens. It was quite thick enough before, grumbled Lestrade, taking a chair. I seem to have dropped into a sort of council of war. Are you... Are you sure about this piece of intelligence? stammered Gregson. I have just come from his room, said Lestrade. I was the first to discover what had occurred. We have been hearing Gregson's view of the matter, Holmes observed. Would you mind letting us know what you have seen and done? I've got no objection, Lestrade answered, seating himself. I confess freely that I was of the opinion that Stangerson was concerned in the death of Drebber. This fresh development has shown me that I was completely mistaken. Full of the one idea, I set myself out to find out what had become of the secretary. Uh, they had been seen together at Euston Station uh, about half past eight on the evening of the third. At two in the morning, Drebber had then found that Brixton Road. The question which confused me was to find out how Stangerson had been employed between 8.30 and the time of the crime, and what had become of him afterward. I telegraphed to Liverpool, giving a description of the men, and warning them to keep a watch on the American boats. I then set to work calling upon the hotels and lodging houses in the vicinity of Houston. You see, I argued that if Drebber and his companion had become separated, the natural course for the latter would be to put up somewhere in the vicinity for the night, and then to hang about the station again until the next morning. They would be likely to agree on some meeting place beforehand, remarked Holmes, and so it proved. I spent the whole of yesterday evening in making inquiries entirely without avail. This morning I began very early at eight o'clock, and I reached Halliday's private hotel on Little George Street. And my inquiry as to whether Mr. Stangerson was living there, they at once answered me in the affirmative. No doubt you are the gentleman whom he was expecting, they said. He has been waiting for a gentleman for two days. Where is he now? I asked. He is upstairs in bed. He wished to be called at nine. All right, said I. I will go and see him at once. It seemed to me that my sudden appearance might shake his nerves and lead him to say something unguarded. The Boots volunteered to show me the room. It was on the second floor, and there was a small corridor leading up to it. The Boots pointed out the door to me, and I was about to go downstairs again when I saw something that made me feel sickish, in spite of my twenty years of experience. From under the door, there curled a little ribbon of blood, which had been meandering across the passage and forming a pool along the skirting at the other side. 
I gave a cry which brought the boots back. He nearly fainted when he saw it. The door was locked on the inside, but we put our shoulders to it and knocked it in. The window of the room was open, and beside the window, all huddled up, we laid a man, or the body of a man, in his nightdress. He was quite dead, and had been for some time, for his limbs were rigid and cold. When we turned him over, the boots recognized him at once as being the same gentleman who had engaged the room under the name of Joseph Stangerson. The cause of death was a deep stab in the left side, which must have penetrated his heart. And now comes the strangest part of the affair. What do you suppose was above the murdered man? I felt a creeping of flesh and a presentiment of coming horror even before Sherlock Holmes answered. The word rash, written in letters of blood, he said. Yes, that was it, said Lestrade in an awestruck voice, and we were all silent for a while. There was something so methodical and something so incomprehensible about the deeds of this unknown assassin that it imparted a fresh ghastliness to his crimes. My nerves, which were steady enough on a field of battle, tingled as I thought of it. The man was seen, continued Lestrade. A milk boy passing on his way to the dairy happened to walk down the lane which leads from the mews at the back of the hotel. He noticed a ladder which usually lay there, was raised against one of the windows on the second floor, which was wide open. After passing, he looked back and saw a man descend the ladder. He came down so quietly and openly that a boy imagined him to be some carpenter or joiner at work in the hotel. He took no particular notice of him. Beyond thinking in his own mind that it was early for him to be at work, he has an impression that the man was tall, had a reddish face, and was dressed in a long brownish coat. He must have stayed in the room some time after the murder, for we found blood-stained water in the basin, where he had washed his hands, and marks on the sheets where he had deliberately wiped his knife. I glanced at Holmes on hearing the description of the murderer, which tallied so exactly with his own. There was, however, no trace of exultation or satisfaction in his face. Did you find nothing in the room which could furnish a clue to the murderer? He asked. Nothing. Stangerson had driver's purse in his pocket, but it seems that that was usual, as he did all of the paying. There was eighty-odd pounds in it, but nothing had been taken. Whatever the motives for these extraordinary crimes, robbery is certainly not one of them. There were no papers or memoranda in the murder man's pocket except for a single telegram dated from Cleveland about a month ago and containing the words, J.H. is in Europe. There was no name appended to this message. And there was nothing else, Holmes asked. Nothing of importance. The man's novel, with which he had tried himself to sleep, was lying upon the bed, and his pipe was in a chair beside him. There was a glass of water upon the table, and the windowsill had a small, cheap ointment box containing a couple of pills. Sherlock Holmes sprang from his chair with an exclamation of delight. Oh, the last link! Oh, he cried exultantly. My case is complete! The two detectives stared at him in amazement. I have now in my hands, my companion said confidently, all the threads which have formed such a tangle. There are, of course, details to be filled in, but 
I am as certain of the main facts from the time that Drebber parted from Staggerson at the station, up to the discovery of the body and the latter, uh, as if I had seen them with my own eyes. I'll give you proof of my knowledge. Could you lay your hand upon those pills? Uh, I've got them, said Lestrade, producing a small white box. I took them on the purse and a telegram, intending to have them put in a place of safety at the police station. It was merely chance in taking these pills, for I am bound to say I do not attach any importance to them. Give them here, said Holmes. Now, doctor, turning to me, are those ordinary pills? They were certainly not. They were of a pearly gray color, small, round, and almost transparent in the light. From their lightness and transparency, I should imagine that they are soluble in water, I remarked. Precisely so, answered Holmes. Now, would you mind going down and fetching that poor little devil of a terrier which has been bad so long, and which the landlady wanted you to put out of its pain yesterday? I went downstairs and carried the dog upstairs in my arms. Its labored breathing and glazing eye showed that it was not far from the end. Indeed, its snow-white muzzle proclaimed that it had already exceeded the usual term of canine existence. I placed it upon a cushion on the rug. "'I will now cut one of these pills in two, said Holmes, and drawing his penknife, he suited the action to the word. "'One half we will return to the box for future purposes. The other half I will place in this wine glass, in which is a teaspoonful of water. You perceive that our friend, the doctor, is right, and that it dissolves readily.' This may be very interesting, said Lestrade, in the injured tone of one who suspects he's being laughed at. I cannot see, however, what it has got to do with the death of Mr. Stangerson. Patience, my friend, patience. You will find in time that it has everything to do with it. I shall now add a little milk to make the mixture palatable, and upon presenting it to the dog we shall find that he laps it up readily enough. As he spoke, he turned the contents of the wine glass into a saucer and placed it in front of the terrier, who speedily licked it dry. Sherlock Holmes's earnest demeanor had so far convinced us that we all sat in silence, watching the animal intently and expecting some startling effect. None such appeared, however. The dog continued to lie stretched upon the cushion, breathing in a labored way, but apparently neither the better nor the worse for its draught. Holmes had taken out his watch, and as minute followed minute without result, the expression of the utmost chagrin and disappointment appeared upon his features. He gnawed upon his lip, drummed his fingers upon the table, and showed every other symptom of acute impatience. So great was his emotion that I felt sincerely sorry for him, while the two detectives smiled derisively, by no means displeased that this check had met him. "'Well, it can't be a coincidence,' he cried, at last springing from his chair and pacing wildly up and down the room. It is impossible that it should be a mere coincidence. The very pills which I suspected in the case of Drebber are actually found after the death of Stangerson, and yet they are inert. What, 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 what can it mean? Surely my whole chain of reasoning cannot have been false. It's impossible. And yet this wretched dog is none the worse. Oh, oh, I have it! I have it! With a perfect shriek of delight, he rushed to the box, cut the other pill in two, dissolved it, added milk, and presented it to the terrier. The unfortunate creature's tongue seemed hardly to have been moistened by it before it gave a convulsive shiver in every limb and lay as rigid and lifeless as if it had been struck by lightning. Sherlock Holmes drew a long breath and wiped the perspiration from his forehead. <sighs> 
I should have had more faith, he said. I ought to know by this time that when a fact appears to be opposed to a long train of deductions, it invariably proves to be capable of bearing some other interpretation. Of the two pills in that box, one was of the most deadly poison, and the other was entirely harmless. I ought to have known that before I ever saw the box at all. This last statement appeared to be so startling that I could hardly believe he was in his sober senses. There was the dead dog, however, to prove that his conjecture had been correct. It seemed to me that the mists in my own mind were gradually clearing away, and I began to have a dim, vague perception of the truth. All of this seems strange to you, continued Holmes, because you failed at the beginning of the inquiry to grasp the importance of a single real clue which was presented to you. I had the good fortune to seize upon it, and everything which has occurred since has confirmed my original suspicion, and indeed was the logical sequence of it. Hence, things which have perplexed you and made the case more obscure have served to enlighten me and strengthen my conclusions. It is a mistake to confound strangeness with mystery. The most commonplace crime is often the most mysterious because it presents no new or special features from which to deduce. This murder would have been infinitely more difficult to unravel had the body of the victim been simply lying on the roadway without any of those outre and sensational accompaniments which have rendered it remarkable. These strange details, far from making this case more difficult, have really made the effect less so. Mr. Gregson, who had listened to this address with considerable impatience, could contain himself no longer. I ain't look here, Mr. Sherlock Holmes. We are all ready to acknowledge that you're a smart man and that you've got your own methods of working. We want something more than the mere theory and preaching now, though. It's the case of taking the man. I've had my case out, and it seems that I was wrong. Young Charpentier could not have engaged in the second affair. Lestrade went after his man, Stangerson, and it appears that he was wrong too. You've thrown out hints here and hints there and seem to know more than we do, but that time has come when we feel that we've got a right to ask straight out. How much do you know of this business? Can you name the man who did it? I cannot help feeling that Gregson is right, sir, remarked Lestrade. We have both tried and we have both failed. You have remarked more than once that you have been in the room, and that you have had all the evidence which you require. Surely you will not withhold it any longer. Any delay in arresting the assassin... I observed, might give him time to perpetrate some fresh atrocity. Thus pressed by us all, Holmes showed signs of irresolution. He continued to walk up and down the room with his head sunk upon his chest and his brows drawn down, as was his habit when lost in thought. There will be no more murders, he said at last, stopping abruptly and facing us. You can put that consideration out of the question. You have asked me if I know the name of the assassin. I, I do. The mere knowing of his name is a small thing, however, compared to the power of laying our hands upon him. This I expect very shortly to do. I have good hopes of managing it through my own arrangements, but it is a thing which needs delicate handling, for we have a shrewd and desperate man to deal with, who is supported, as I have occasion to prove, by another who is as clever as himself. As long as this man has no idea that anyone can have a clue, there is some chance of securing him. But if he has the slightest suspicion, he would change his name and vanish with an instant to one of oh, the four million inhabitants of this great city. Without meaning to hurt either of your feelings, I am bound to say that I consider these men to be 
more than a match for the official force, and that is why I have not asked your assistance. If I fail, I shall, of course, incur all the blame due to this mission, but that I am prepared for. At present, I am ready to promise that the instant I can communicate with you without endangering my own combinations, I shall do so. Gregson and Lestrade seemed to be far from satisfied by this assurance, or by the deprecating allusion to the detective police. The former had flushed up to the roots in his flaxen hair, and the other's beady eyes glistened with curiosity and resentment. Neither of them had time to speak, however, before there was a tap at the door, and the spokesman of the street urchins, young Wiggins, introduced his insignificant and unsavory person. Please, sir, he said, touching his forelock. Oh, cut the cab downstairs. Good boy, said Holmes blandly. Why don't you introduce this pattern at Scotland Yard? He continued, taking a pair of steel handcuffs from a drawer. See how beautifully the spring works? They fasten in an instant. That the old pattern is good enough, remarked Lestrade, if we can only find the man to put him in. Very good, very good, said Holmes, smiling. The cabman may as well help me with my boxes. Just ask him to step up, Wiggins. I was surprised to find my companion speaking as though he were about to set out on a journey, since he had not said anything to me about it. There was a small portmanteau in the room, and this he pulled out and began to strap. He was very busily engaged when the cabman entered the room. Uh, just help me with this buckle, cabman, he said, kneeling over his task and never turning his head. The fellow came forward with a somewhat sullen, defiant air and put down his hands to assist. At that instant, there was a sharp click, the jangling of metal, and Sherlock Holmes sprang to his feet. Gentlemen, he cried with flashing eyes, let me introduce to you uh, Mr. Jefferson Hope, the murderer of Enoch Drebber and Joseph Stangerson. The whole thing occurred in a moment, so quickly I had no time to realize it. I have a vivid recollection of that instant, of Holmes' triumphant expression and the ring of his voice, the cabman's dazed, savage face as he glared upon the glittering handcuffs, which appeared to have, by magic, appeared upon his wrists. For a second or two, we might have been a group of statues. And then, with an inarticulate roar of fury, the prisoner wrenched himself free from Holmes's grasp and hurled himself through the window. Woodwork and glass gave way before him, but before he got quite through, Gregson, Lestrade, and Holmes sprang upon him like so many staghounds. He was dragged back into the room and then commenced a terrific conflict. So powerful and fierce was he that the four of us were shaken off again and again. He appeared to have the convulsive strength of a man in an epileptic fit. His face and hands were terribly mangled by the passage through the glass, but loss of blood had no diminishing effect upon his resistance. It was not until Lestrade succeeded in getting his hand inside his neckcloth and half strangling him that we made him realize his struggles were of no avail. And even then, we felt no security until we had pinioned his feet as well as his hands. That done, we rose to our feet, breathless and panting. We have his cab said Sherlock Holmes. It will serve to take him to Scotland Yard. And now, gentlemen, he continued with a pleasant smile, we have reached the end of our little mystery. You are very welcome to put in any questions that you would like to me now, and there is no danger that I will refuse to answer them.
there you have it, folks. The end of our stream for today and the end of part one of this book. We now embark into part two, which I believe is the latter half of this book. Um, everybody, Sherlock Holmes will indeed answer all of our questions if we should wait but a week. We shall revisit Sherlock Holmes as we're going to be revisiting all of our series here. Of course, we have got a great many series in the works right now. Uh, two of, uh, three of them, I should say, very consistent. And an additional two that sort of pop up when I've got the time. Boy, it's a big, it's a busy week for the old Sam, isn't it? Ooh, lots of editing to do. Ooh, mama. Our week currently looks as follows. For our inconsistent streams, you may find me playing Oblivion late at night or... Uh, terrain crafting a little bit less late at night uh, those streams will simply come up when I've got time for them uh, we are doing a lore focused we're doing a lore master playthrough of Oblivion um, because there's some great lore over there and I've well I've missed it dearly um, in addition we're doing some terrain craft right now I'm working on a sort of test diorama as a proof of concept and technique for the big diorama which is going to be a four foot by six foot diorama of the Shire so, come hang out while I'm working on that. I expect I'm going to be in the painting stage uh, here beginning tonight. So, join me on over there. We're in for a grand old time. Um, let's see. After that, we go on to our regular schedule, which is Tuesdays. Vintage Sidecar, where we shed some light on classic lit. Of course, some of the most classic mystery stories there are. Sherlock Holmes, that's what we're up to now, and we will be doing this every Tuesday, barring any interference. On Wednesdays, Wednesdays are Side Cannons! The tabletop RPG wing of Sidecar Stories. Currently, uh, in a couple of adventures, um, both here on Twitch, there is a chat play adventure where chat plays one character and I play the other, uh, attending a secret school for strange children. And then, of course, we have got uh, the RP and Adventure server for Recetus. The Realms of Recetus RP and Adventure server is open. You can head over into the big Discord to find out more about that. And then, of course, finally, on Thursdays, we are reading through The Lord of the Rings. We are currently in some of the very first chapters. It is a great time to be jumping into sidecar stories. I would urge you all to please jump in. Please tell folks about it that you think might be interested in this sort of stuff. Uh, of course, you can find me... Uh, here at all sorts of hours of the day and all sorts of times of the week, but if you've got friends who like Lord of the Rings or Sherlock Holmes or tabletop RPGs or crafting stuff or Oblivion, well, there's always a lot to find here. Everybody, that's it for me for today. Let me see if there's anybody to raid over to. What do we think? Who do we think is going to be online today? Um, nobody I know personally, so instead, I shall simply bid you all adieu. I do have to sign off fairly quickly on this one, but it's been a grand stream so far. Thank you so much for joining me. I am very excited for all of, uh, all the various streams we got going on, and I do hope that you will join me for, uh, for some of those as we proceed. And again, tell folks about them. I think people would enjoy it. Have a good one, folks. I will see you either later tonight or tomorrow.